0: golly we're so so glad to be here when Paul and Dana reached out months ago six eight months ago to talk to us about the married couples Oasis Conference that we just completed this weekend see if we could come to get it on our calendar I remember Tracy and I said we get to go to Wisconsin at the end of July and escape that Texas heat we're gonna get up to Wisconsin, we'll put this on the counter, it'll be so cool up there. It'll be so nice. Thank you for that. It's been really, really great. This place is very, very dear to us. Uh, Paul and Dana, Stephen and Kara, all the entire family and the entire staff here, are just very much in our hearts. We pray for you guys all the time. As Paul mentioned, we've been on the board since day one. We were sort of part of the little huddle that we were, we were friends with theirs when they were first seeking to, to plant this church and seeking God's direction about where. And God led them to this place, to this city specifically, because this place needs this place. And God's done amazing things here. But I, I do believe you know, I hope you know, what a gift Paul and Dana and Stephen and Kara and the whole leadership team are uh, to this church. They are. Just have such hearts for you and for this city. You're led well. Really, really led well. And that's not something that uh, is as common as it ought to be. It's been five years since I've stood in this spot. It's hard to believe. Of course, the last year, year and a half is sort of missing time. It's sort of just a Twilight Zone dream-like thing, but still, five years can go by really quickly. And obviously, there have been a few things happen over the last five years. Events, life happens, uh, and it's been hard for a lot of people. We know uh, a lot of people who, over everything that's happened, just really even over the last five years, there's been things that have been polarizing and isolating and hurtful. And uh, a lot of people have just really been uh, under, under it, under attack. And uh, we've known people who've lost people very, very dear to them with this COVID epidemic thing. One of Tracy's dear friends lost both of her parents inside of two weeks uh, last year. Uh, And it's, the time itself has been difficult enough. These things come and go in history. I'm a student of history and I've observed and and read and and I've seen it with my own eyes that history tends to flow in cycles. And there's a 50-year cycle to history of where things get a little shaky and rocky. Uh, You know, 50 years ago from 2020 was 1970. If you remember 68, if anyone who's old enough to remember and been aware of what was going on in 1968, 69, 70, 71, it was bonkers. A lot of people don't realize just how crazy it was uh, in that period of time with Uh, The Cold War and the threat of nuclear war, and there was this economic upheaval, and then there was the the sexual revolution, and the cultural revolution, and waves of protests, and cities on fire, and uh, leaders being assassinated, and all this crazy, crazy stuff was going on, and anyone who was conscious and aware of what was going on at that moment was 100% sure that everyone had lost their cotton-picking minds and that uh, history and the country and civilization was just hurtling down the highway with all the wheels off on rims with just sparks flying everywhere. I was just a little kid at the time, but I was aware enough to know that that was the case. Every 50 years or so, things get crazy, and this actually aligns with the sort of the biblical, uh, a biblical thing that God acknowledged in when he built a society in the old testament he built the israelite society and he basically pointed out to them that there's a 50-year cycle to things that there there needs to be a reset or so every 50 years so you got seven uh, periods of seven years takes you to 49 years and then in that 50th year everything needs to kind of rest and reset well that 50-year cycle just has continued through history and there's another one there's a 500-year cycle where uh, throughout history God moves into seasons of shaking that happen every 500 years or so. And uh, out of it, it, it's a really, really nutty time to be alive and especially to be one of his people. But out of those crazy times, God's kingdom advances. His plan of redemption in the earth makes great advances in those 500 year cycles. Well, we're, we're fortunate enough friends and neighbors, to be uh, uh, living through a conjunction of a 50-year cycle and a 500-year cycle. So, uh, you know, starting around 2000, it's not exactly 500 years to the day, but we're living in that 500-year cycle time, and we're also living in that 50-year cycle time. So maybe it shouldn't surprise us that things are a little interesting uh, right now. So, you um, Here's the thing that, and I've been reminding the folks in our community, uh, in fellowship now for the last couple of years, is that what's true in a season like this, it's always true, is that God never repeals Romans eight twenty eight. Romans eight twenty eight is always in effect for you, and for me, and what that says is, is that God causes all things to work together for the good of his people, the people who love him, the people who have been called by him. And that's never not true. It doesn't say God causes all things. It doesn't say God causes all things, period. A lot of people think that. A lot of Christians think that. What it says is that God is smart enough, he's brilliant enough, and he's powerful enough that no matter what's going on in the world, all things are working together for your and my good. Isn't that a comforting thing to know in a season like that? Isn't that a hopeful thing to know? We're in, uh, we're in a season that Paul describes in Hebrews chapter 12 at the very back end of that chapter. It's the chapter after the Faith Hall of Fame. But he's, he talks about a time in which everything that can be shaken is being shaken so that that which cannot be shaken will remain. That's what that 500-year cycle of, of redemptive advancement in the earth is all about. So here we are, we're in it, we're, we're in this season of shaking, and things are weird, and I wish I could tell you, I'm not gonna characterize this as bad news, I'm just gonna characterize it as news, that I, I wish I could tell you that I just think the worst of it's behind us. That from here on out, things are going to start feeling less weird but I cannot tell you that with confidence. It's very possible that these 50-year these cycles and 500-year cycles of shaking that, in, in which God's still causing all things to work together for the good for his people and advancing his plan for the church and the gospel in the earth um, might continue for a while. So given that it's going to continue for a while, possibly, there are two things that are very, very important for you and me. Uh, to be optimally and maximally um, healthy, whole, protected, sound, and productive in a season like this. And the first one is that you be planted in a community of believers, that you have your life and your family rooted well and solidly into a Bible-believing, spirit-filled, Jesus-centric, Jesus-honoring community, and that you're not just hanging out on the fringe, you're not just kind of pumping in and looking in every once in a while, but that you've got your life and you're investing yourself and your resources and your gifts into a community like this, this one right here, so that you can know, you're known, people know who you are, they, and, um, and you know others. You're, you have a family. It's very, very important that you do that. The other thing that's very important in a season like this is that you know how to pray. Uh, and the fact of the matter is is that there's not just one kind of prayer. There are all different kinds of prayer. Paul says so in Ephesians 6.18. He talks about praying in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. Ephesians 6.18. So there's a couple of takeaways from there. First of all, he talks about all kinds of prayer. Well, that must mean that there's more than one kind of prayer, right? The Greek word that's translated all kinds in that verse is symphineo, S-U-M-P-H-E-N-E-O. And Symphoneo is actually where we get our English word symphony. And so what it's speaking of is where uh, there are a bunch of different instruments, and but a symphony is a sheet of music and everybody on all the different instruments are basically playing off the same sheet of music, but they're not exactly playing the same sound or the same tone or the same note, and yet they're all harmonized in a way so that they're all advancing the music forward. That's what a symphony is. And all the different kinds of prayer we have in our tool belt, um, there, um, all of them are uh, instruments in that, in that symphony. In Philippians 4, 6, Paul says, Be anxious for nothing. Don't be afraid. Don't be nervous. Don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. In that previous verse, it talked about all kinds of prayers and requests or in the old King James, supplication. Here, the same, Philippians 4, 6. With thanksgiving, by prayer and supplication. So, the way most of us grow up, when we think about prayer, the way we were taught prayer, our default setting on prayer is asking God. We go to God and we ask him things. We ask him for things that we need. I was taught that at my mother's knee. As a guy this high, if you grew up in a Christian home, that's what we were taught. You go to God, and you ask for what you need. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. That is a valid, legitimate, Bible-authorized way to pray. As a matter of fact, numerous scriptures talk about that. James says, you have not because you ask not. Jesus said, ask and you shall receive. So that's supplication. That's that old asking God is, is... that kind of prayer. And there's a place for it. Uh, As a matter of fact, what God wants us to do is ask and ask big and ask in faith. And he wants our asking to be informed by the Holy Spirit, the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Your best, most informed, most effective kinds of asking are when you, in prayer, partner with the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit tell you, okay, here would be a great thing to ask for. Ask for, ask for this, because there's some energy, there's some supernatural energy in this. So we partner with the Holy Spirit in our asking. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's another kind of prayer, and it's specifically this kind of prayer, among many others, that is the prayer that you want when you need supernatural, miraculous power for breakthrough in a situation supernatural, miraculous power. How did I discover this kind of prayer? I went back, I tend to challenge all of my assumptions and try to take a step back and get a fresh look. And I wanted to do this with prayer. So I went through the Gospels and the book of Acts and I looked at every single instance that Jesus or one of the apostles prayed in the Gospels or Acts. Incident by incident, moment by moment. And an amazing pattern emerged. Let me just give you a sneak preview of what that pattern is. And then let's, let's take a look at the word momentarily and just see if that pattern holds up. The pattern that emerged was that when miraculous supernatural power intervened and changed circumstances, the prayer perceived something that the Holy Spirit showed them. And then they gave a command. They commanded. They did not ask. There was not supplication. There was a command. Now, you don't have to take my word for it. Let's just take a quick look through, and I'll just take some of the examples um, that we see in the Bible. There are 37 recorded miracles of Jesus in the Gospels. And in all but a couple of these incidents, Jesus gives a command He doesn't ask God. Right out of the gate, one of the first things I noticed is that's the way he prayed for food. I grew up blessing, asking God to bless the food. Now please, don't get religious or rigid or make a rule or a law out of this, right? But I made this change once I started seeing what Jesus did when he multiplied the fish and the loaves and fed 5,000 people or at the Last Supper whenever he was blessing the, uh, the bread and the wine Uh, uh, With the disciples what Jesus did what the word says is that he gave thanks and then he blessed the food He gave thanks. He acknowledged God's provision with gratitude But then he spoke a blessing over the food. It did not say Jesus said dear God, please bless this food He said food be blessed so I immediately, as soon as I saw that, I began to change the way I prayed over my meals. Don't take, the, again, don't, don't take this for more, more than it is. It was just something that the Lord ministered to me. So from that day forward, when we sit down to pray, I say, Father, thank you for your provision. You're so great. I call this food blessed. I call this, ble- this food blessed to our bodies, purified, sanctified to us. I speak that blessing over the food. But over and over again, when Jesus moves in supernatural power, he tends to give a command. He told fish and loaves to be blessed. When he walked into a a room where a, a man's daughter had died, he was trying to get there. The father was trying to get him there while there was still time. Jesus arrived too late. Can I remind you, brothers and sisters, that with Jesus, it's never too late. But he walks into the room, clears all the mourners out of the way, pauses for a moment and doesn't say, oh dear God, please raise this girl up. He said with a loud commanding voice, Talitha Kum, daughter, rise. He gave a command. Uh, to another man who'd been uh, who was crippled, he said, "Take up your bed and walk." To another man, he said, "Be whole." To another man who had a withered hand, he said, "Stretch out your hand." To another man, uh, he said, um, "Pick up your stretcher, your mat, and go home." To wind and waves that were out of control, he said, "Calm down. Be still. Peace to you, waves and wind." To another man who was demonized, he said, "Get out, get out of him." He talked to a tree one day. He found he came across a tree that was lying. It was a hypocrite tree. Fig trees bear fruit and leaf at the same time. Jesus comes across a tree and it's got leaves but no fruit, and this was he. he this is a prophetic symbol of what was about to happen in Israel, because. Uh, Apostate Israel was about to receive God's judgment uh, for its hypocrisy. The Pharisees were pretending to be fruit bearing and they were barren. The leaders of Israel were pretending to be fruitful, healthy examples of what God wanted in the earth. And they were, they were hypocrites. So Jesus looks at the tree and says, no more fruit. He didn't say, dear God, dry up this tree. Are you starting to see the pattern? In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus, the, the disciples came to, came to Jesus and said, teach us how to pray. And he said, okay, you know the prayer. You know it by heart. We all learned it when we were kids. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your name is holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, notice, the first two clauses of that were declarations. They were not requests. Father, your name is holy. Your will be done. This this is a blessing. This is a proclamation. This is a command. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then we get a request. We get a supplication. Give us this day our daily bread. Then we get another request, another supplication. uh, uh, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And then we get a third request. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. And then we get another proclamation or a declaration. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. So when Jesus was going to teach his disciples how to pray, there were four declarations or commands and three requests. Maybe we ought to be commanding and declaring and proclaiming a little bit more than we're requesting. Let's look at the pattern for the... um, for the apostles, because maybe that was just Jesus. That's what I thought when I got to this point in my study. I started thinking, well, okay, Jesus always gave a command, but you know, that's Jesus, right? Of course, we have to keep in mind that Jesus emptied himself when he became a human. He emptied himself, of, he, although he was fully God, sinless. He, he became a second or last Adam a sinless man, and then when he came up out of the water of his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon him, and from that point forward, he began to do miracles. From the the moment of being anointed by the Holy Spirit, and hearing God's voice say, this is my son, and I'm really, really pleased with him. From that point forward, Jesus began to do miracles. As a man anointed by the Holy Spirit, in complete union and communication and connection with the Holy Spirit, There was nothing, there was no interference in his Holy Spirit connection. So, I had to ask myself, well, maybe if that, let's see how the apostles began to pray, especially where miracle power came on the scene in the book of Acts. If you turn over with me to Acts chapter 9, one of the first incidents we see in Acts 9 is Peter And Peter is uh, in a city near Joppa, and there's a community of believers in Joppa, and they've lost one of their key, core, most prized, precious members of their community. Tabitha, who everyone loves, everyone needs, everyone adores, has died. And they're beside themselves, so they send for Peter. Peter comes, you know the story, and arrives, and everyone is just unglued. They're just broken by the fact that this woman has died. They cannot believe it's happened. So they're mourning and they're telling Peter all their stories and they're, and they're trying to, they're pleading with him and they're, they're just grief stricken. Well, Peter clears them out of the room to get a little bit of quiet, to get a little bit of peace, uh, to, to see how he's supposed to proceed. And then if you look over at verse, um, 40, here's what we see. Peter made them all leave the room. Then he knelt down and prayed. Then, turning to the dead body, he said, Tabitha, rise up. Now let's just think about for just a moment what happened here. Peter walks into this chaotic situation. He believes God wants to do something, but he's got to hear from God. So he clears the room, and he kneels down to pray. Now Luke doesn't let us in. On what he prayed or how he prayed or what took place. Here's all we know. Is that he knelt down and prayed. And then when he stood up. When he was praying, Tabitha's still dead. Then he stands up and what does he do? Does he, then he say, oh God, please raise this sister up. That's not what he did. What did he do? He issued a command. We see the same thing over in... Um, Over in um, Acts chapter 14, we'll take a look there right quick in Acts 14. Paul is preaching in Lystra. Paul and Barnabas there encountered a man who from birth had never walked, for he was crippled in his feet. He listened carefully to Paul as he preached. All of a sudden, Paul, note this, watch what happens here. All of a sudden, Paul discerned that this man had faith in his heart to be healed. This probably wasn't the only unwell man in the group, especially given the time in which we were, uh, they were living. There were probably numerous unwell people in the room. But Paul discerns something. He discerns that at this moment, in this time, this is this man's time. God has done something, a grace work in this man's heart who's listened during the proclamation of the word. And Paul discerns that there's something going on with that man. So what does he do? Does he say, oh, God, please help this guy. I feel sorry for him. No, he shouts, you, in the name of our Lord Jesus, stand up on your feet. The man instantly jumped up upon his feet and stood for the first time in his life. Over in Acts chapter 16, we have another instance. I won't uh, take the time to read it, but you're familiar with it where Paul comes to a city and there's a demonized girl following him around, shouting and carrying on. And she does this for days. And it's distracting, it's obnoxious, even though what she's saying is she's saying, listen to these men. It's a demonic thing that's designed to distract from people actually hearing and receiving what Paul is there to to say and to minister. And then ultimately, after days of this, Paul turns around and says, get out of her. You out now. And the spirit leaves. He didn't do it on the first day. He didn't do it on the second day. It's the third day he finally gets this green light in the Spirit to issue the command. We just see it over and over again. There's a truth that God needs us. He has chosen to need us to partner with him to be his voice of authority in the earth. Those of you who were in the... um, marriage conference that we did over the last couple of days. We talked about that, how in the garden, when God put man and woman in the garden, he commissioned them, he gave them a mission, and he delegated authority to them over the entire planet. They forfeited that authority to God's enemy for a time until God could get another Adam into the earth. But when God got another Adam into the earth, who, who where Adam made wrong choices, this one made the right choice, where Adam failed the test of obedience in a plush garden with absolute abundance. The second Adam made the right choice with none of that, with only the curse, the barrenness and the destitution of the curse around him, that second Adam made the right choice. So what God has chosen to do by design from the very first is use people who belong to him to be his voice of authority in the earth. There's two occasions during Jesus' ministry where God spoke audibly from heaven in a loud voice, but still not everybody understood what he said. Some people thought it thundered when really God was speaking. Everywhere else from that time forward, God has using you and me to voice his authoritative commands in the earth. And those authoritative commands need to be spoken for his will to be done on earth, just like it's done in heaven. Winston Churchill uh, got the British people through the terrible, terrible test of World War II. Uh, There was a series of time, years there, where it just looked extremely dark. The British were running out of resources. The Nazis, the Germans were bombing British cities. Um, There was no help on the horizon. Churchill had been pleading with Americans, Roosevelt, to come help him, and no help was coming. And it looked really, really dark. And Churchill, in his radio addresses, fortified and steeled and encouraged and inspired the British people to carry on and to fight on and uh, got them through that test. As we know, ultimately, the Americans came to help. But after it was all over, a reporter was asking Churchill one time, he said, how did you do that? How were you able to basically so give courage and inspiration to the British people to get them through that terrible, terrible trial? And what Churchill said was most remarkable. He said, oh, he said it was the British people who had the lion's heart. It just fell to me to give the roar. Let me say that again. Churchill said, it was the British people that had the lion's heart. It just fell to me to give the roar. Can I tell you, brothers and sisters, that it is our savior, Jesus Christ, who has the lion's heart. He is the Lion of Judah, he is the victorious King of Kings, and he emerged from the tomb and told his disciples, now, because of what's happened, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. You, therefore, go. Because when the Holy Spirit comes and you're born again, you're going to get wrapped in me. Something mysterious is going to happen, so that I'm in you and you're in me, and you're wrapped in me, and you're not only wrapped in me, you're wrapped in my authority. So Jesus says, I have the lion's heart, but it's going to fall to you, my followers, to give the roar. That is a kind of praying called seeing and decreeing. It's about when you encounter a need, you encounter a situation, you stop. You do what Peter did. You stop and pause and try to discern What's going on? What's the real need? Does the real need have a different root? Just think about a couple of instances where Jesus brought miraculous power to bear on a scene. Remember when the four friends lowered the guy through the hole in the ceiling to Jesus? This guy desperately needed healing. So he gets lowered into the middle of the room and Jesus looks at him and what does he say? Did he say, oh, guy, be healed, he said, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. What's going on there? Jesus perceived that that man's bondage to that infirmity had a root. And the root was shame. And so he, Jesus, instead of dealing with the hacking at the branches, he went to the root because he knew to go to the root. And so once he basically, that guy heard the word, From the Son of God that his sins were forgiven, the door was open for him to be healed. Why did Jesus heal multiple blind people in his ministry and not once did he ever do it the same way as the other time? If there is a way for a blind person to see, why On one occasion, just Jesus spit on the ground and make mud and put it on the guy's eyes and tell him to go wash. And in another occasion, he lays his hands on the guy's eyes. And in another occasion, he just speaks. Jesus is operating in the prayer of seeing and decreeing. Because all around us, all the time, there's so much more going on than we can perceive with our five senses. If all you're doing is coming at a challenge, coming at a problem, coming at a need, with what you can perceive with your five senses, you're blind. There's a good friend of mine. He's a brilliant Christian counselor. He says, we think that because we see what we see, we're seeing everything there is to see. But we never are. There's more going on that our five senses can't perceive than, our, than what our senses do perceive in every circumstance. In this moment right now, there are angels in this room. There may be battles going on. There are wheels and cogs and, and spiritual machinery of things that are turning. and The words that I'm speaking are having an impact, but you're not going to perceive any of that with your five senses. So what's the key? What's the key to operating in the prayer of seeing and decreeing? It's not, in, it's not encountering every need and just blindly hacking at it with the sword of the word or your thoughts. But that's what we do. We, we're empathetic, sympathetic, compassionate, loving people. So when we encounter a need, we just, we got all in our soul and we just go at the thing. We're blind as we can be, but we just go at it, just hacking. We're like in a, in a room, a dark room blindfolded and we know there, there's an enemy in there somewhere. So we're just swinging around blindly. We're quoting the word and we're commanding and we're doing all these things that we know to do when we could stop, pause. Calm our souls and say, Holy Spirit of God, show me what I can't see here. How do I go at this? I know I've, I've got a pretty good idea of what you want, because sickness and disease is not of you. Oppression is not of you. Grief is not of you. Uh, bondage is not of you. Addiction is not of you. You sent your son to set everyone free and to make everyone whole. So I'm not confused about the what. What I need insight about is the how and the when. Because sometimes timing is everything. Sometimes the, the praying and the spiritual pressure we've been putting on something has been moving machinery in the spirit. Angels have been, um, have been dispatched. Battles are being fought and things are rolling and grinding and churning into place and it takes time and then there's the moment. You might have to endure some girl walking behind you for three days, yammering and being distracted until you get the green light and you say, okay, out, you're done. The Holy Spirit wants to partner with us in our praying. A lot of times it's easier to hear and see for someone else than it is for yourself just because it's hard to look at yourself. It's hard to be objective about yourself. That's why we need each other. That's why we need to minister one to another. That's why we confess our sins one to another. We need each other because it's easy for her to see my context often than to see it myself. We need to minister uh, to one another. We need to do warfare and fight for one another. The Holy Spirit wants to help you. The um, Jeremiah 33.3, I'm gonna close with this. Jeremiah 33.3 says, you know it well. Call to me, God says, and I will show you or tell you great and mighty things that you don't know. Right? I've always puzzled about that word mighty. I know that God could tell me great things. when, When God says, okay, call to me and I'll tell you great things, That means that these things are important. The things he's going to tell me are very important. Okay, I'm on board. But how can he tell me a mighty thing? How does that work? Take a dive into the Hebrew word that's translated mighty in that verse. And what you'll find is the reason it gets translated mighty is because it's talking about a fortress or a stronghold that's super strong and impenetrable. Like a vault. And what? the Lord is saying is that there is information, there is knowledge, there is wisdom that's inaccessible to you. It's in a vault. It's in a fortress. It's in a mighty, impenetrable, inaccessible fortress. But what is God's promise here? Call unto me and I will reveal to you important things that have been previously inaccessible, that to other people have not been able to access, but I will reveal them to you. This is why the Apostle Paul says, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but most of all that you might prophesy. See, I'm not a prophet. I don't stand in the office of prophet. I stand in the office of pastor teacher, and I don't have the motiv- motivational gift of prophecy. I have the motivational gift of teaching, but I have Paul's exhortation to earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that I may prophesy. And what is to prophesy is to hear what God's saying and give it voice. That's all it is. And we can all do it. So the Holy Spirit wants to show us the invisible, hidden, inaccessible context of every need we encounter so that we can then perceive and discern the root, the how, the timing, and then we can sensitively, when we get the green light, issue an authoritative command. Give the roar. Give the roar. Stand up with me if you would. As a believer, you are in Christ, and he is in you, and you have been clothed in his righteousness, And you are clothed in his authority. You have the Holy Spirit of God. And Jesus said his job is to lead you into all truth, show you all the true things, and show you things to come. Illuminating you to things that your natural eyes and ears can't perceive is his role. It's his job for you. So let me have you make a proclamation just follow me repeat what I say and we're gonna make a bold faith-filled proclamation right now this is about the power of blessing this is this is having blessing in our mouths so just say this with me father I receive from you the knowledge of important things understanding of inaccessible things the Holy Spirit is opening my eyes to see what my natural eyes cannot see. Spirit of God, Spirit of God. show me what to, command, show what to command, and I will give the roar. Give the roar. In, Jesus In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. I hope this message was a blessing to you. Yeah, hey, we just wanted to give you the opportunity as well to partner up and plug in to the church uh, by giving. So if you would like to be a part of that and help make this all possible, you can do so by going to wearelovechurch.com give. You can also plug in, stay in the loop with what's going on at the church via our Instagram and Facebook platforms. So love y'all. God bless you.